welcome to Sunday Sermons with Resurrection Church. This is the weekly preaching and teaching ministry of Resurrection Church in Gig Harbor, Washington. We just want to invite you to join us as we study God's story revealed through the Bible and seek to apply His truth to our modern life. Our hope is that through these teachings, you would experience life with Jesus as you experience life with us. Uh, If you've got your copy of the scriptures, open up to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, if you must, you can open up your app too. Uh, If you'd like a a hard copy of the scriptures and don't have one, we've actually got some out on the hospitality table for you. And so you're more than welcome to grab one now or grab one of those on your way out as well. Grab one to give to a friend, whatever you'd like to do. That's what those Bibles are out there for. Uh, We're in John chapter 14. We are continuing in our sermon series called Life with Jesus. And our hope for today is that you would experience life with Jesus, that you would experience the life of Jesus in, in some new and deeper way today during our time together, that you could then carry that life with Jesus out with you into the rest of your life so that when other people do life with you, they are maybe inadvertently doing life with Jesus as well. I'm going to read our verses all the way through for us and then uh, we will jump in. We're going to be in verses 8 through 14. So join me there, John chapter 14, verses 8 through 14. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough. For us, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen the Father, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, for the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. The word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for the celebration that we have already gotten to have. And we thank you that we can celebrate you as we meet with you, hear from you in your word. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would uh, be with us and dwell us now. That you would open our eyes to see you as you truly are. That you would open our ears to hear what you are truly saying to us and not just what our ears want to hear. Lord, would you show yourself to us, meet with us as we partner with you in your word today. Lord, I pray that the the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you, my God, my rock, and my redeemer. We say, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Amen. Have you ever tried to convey an idea or, or an image to somebody that has never been exposed to that idea or that, or that thing before and just like failed miserably. This is how I feel anytime I try to draw literally anything. 
Like, anything at all. You ask me to draw a cow, I'm probably going to give you a dog. If you ask me to draw a dog, I'm probably going to give you a pig. Like, and they all look the same, but they, for some reason, none of them look like anything. I just, I just can't really make my pen, like, represent the thing that's in my mind the way that I want it to. Luckily, I'm not alone in this. And, and I know that I'm not alone because the internet exists. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing where other people's artistic failures are often on full display so that maybe I can feel better about myself. I, I don't know. But, but uh, this week I found an interesting article that was a compilation of medieval artwork. But the thing about this particular compilation of artwork was that the artists were painting or drawing things that they had never seen before. Like someone else had come back from a far off journey and told the resident artist in their town, like, I saw this amazing thing. It kind of looked like this. And they're like, ooh, okay, I'll, I'll try it. I'll try drawing it and let me know how I did. Here's some of their attempts. Any guesses? Oh, let, let, let's hang out on each one for a little bit. This, this is, there we go. A- any guesses what this might be? A fish, a leviathan. Did someone say a leviathan? If you did, you get, you get mad Bible points right now. That, that's so cool. That's a whale, which is like, okay. Someone came and said, like, I saw a big fish. Maybe that's what I would draw. Something like that. Okay, they didn't know it was a mammal, but whale. Okay, we'll give it like four out of ten. What, what's the next one? Any, any guesses? Angry bird, I heard. Not, not angry birds. Nope, not that. Can't you see that's an oyster? That, that's an oyster. It's someone who had never seen an oyster, but it's got like a weird sand color. It's round. It's got a little beak or something. I don't know. That, that, that was their attempt at an oyster. Uh, check out the next one. Any, any guesses what's going on here? Like you've clearly got a horse. A warthog. It's an elephant. It's the world famous like dog-sized elephant that... that roamed the earth in the Middle Ages. Then, like, isn't that so obvious? Last one is my favorite. And it, it says it right up there. This is supposed to be a crocodile. And this poor thing, I don't know what that is, but it's like a combination of like six different things, I'm pretty sure. But that, that was the attempt at a crocodile. But, but this phenomenon of, of failing to represent something accurately doesn't just happen with people who have never seen the thing, and it doesn't just happen in medieval times. There, there's actually sometimes where we know exactly what we're trying to represent, and we still fail. Do y'all remember when this statue came out a few years ago? It's of Cristiano Ronaldo. One of the most famous athletes in the world, at the time arguably the best soccer player in the world, and that statue got unveiled in his hometown. <laughs> Not exactly what you want to have happen. Even crazier than this, they gave the artist a second shot. They were like, ah, oh, try again in a year. It'll be, and he actually did better. But this was. Just like blowing up on the internet. I remember when this came out, like how bad of a representation is this? This even happens with our representations of Jesus. Now you might be like, well, no one knows what Jesus really looks like, Drew. Like we don't have any photographs. And that is true. But I can almost guarantee you, almost, that he didn't look like this. 
This is a, a Mary and Jesus statue at a church. I think it's in Ontario, Canada. And they were having some troubles with baby Jesus' head staying attached to the rest of the statue. And so instead of like fixing it permanently, they, they put out a call for local artists who could do stone sculpting. And there was a lady who had studied stone sculpting for one semester at a junior college. And they hired her, and that's what she did. I mean, maybe there are worse representations of Jesus. Based on how Mary looks, I'm going to guess it wasn't that accurate in the first place. But like it, would, it was better than like weird clay head baby Jesus. Just creepy. We turn to representations, to, to images of things, in order to help us know something about the real thing. It's unfortunate when the representations are as bad as some of these examples, because it, instead of revealing what it's supposed to reveal, it actually clouds and hides the true image, the true message that it's trying to get across. In John chapter 14, Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples. And at this point, as we jump in back in verse 8, we have just heard Jesus say that he is going to go away, that he is going to go and be with the Father. And his disciples have some questions about this. They're like, how how can we know where you're going? How can we know how to get there? How can we follow you when we don't know the way? And Jesus drops that famous line, I am the way and the truth and the life. He goes on to say, no one comes to the Father except through me. And he tells them, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Let's jump back up to verse 8 and see how the disciples respond. In particular, we see one disciple decide that his best course of action was to talk back to Jesus. Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Think about this. Jesus literally just said in verse 7, if you look up one verse, Jesus said, from now on you do know the Father and you have seen him. Jesus just got done saying, I am showing you the Father. Right here. And Philip speaks up and says, yeah, but if you could just show us the Father, we we would really appreciate it. In fact, he says, that would be enough for us. And that little word, enough, in the Greek is tied to the idea of having sufficient strength for something. He's saying, Jesus, you just told me you're going away. You're asking me to follow you, even though I don't know where you're going. I'm not going to be able to do this on my own. Show me the Father, and that'll give me the strength I need. Show, Show me the Father. Let me experience something of the presence and the power of God, and that will be the strength that I need to endure following you, even when I don't know where you are, even when I can't see you anymore. This is interesting. To me, that this is Philip's request. Because because Jesus is about to correct Philip in love. But if you notice, Jesus doesn't correct Philip's desire. Or even his his request at a most fundamental level. He he doesn't say, Philip, you're asking to see the Father? That's the the wrong thing to ask. 
He doesn't say, Philip, you're asking for more strength. You should be able to do this under your own power. He, he doesn't say that. He actually says, no, you know what? You do need to see the Father. You, you do need to be strengthened. You need something more than what you have right now if you are going to endure this life of following me. What he corrects is not Philip's desire, rather Philip's understanding of what he needs. Jesus says, you do need to see the Father, but you've already seen him. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. This is why Jesus says, after all this time, don't you know me? He, he, he doesn't correct saying like, Philip, why are you trying to see the Father? Why do you want to experience God? Jesus wants his disciples to experience God. But he asks, don't you yet know me? Because he knows that he is the way to experiencing God. It, it's, a, it's a faulty relational understanding that Philip is holding on to. That's what Jesus is trying to correct. And as we look at Jesus' response, we see that, that not only has Jesus already shown us the Father, he's actually done a lot more. than He's done something much more profound than simply pointing us to the Father. It's, it's almost as if Philip is saying... Jesus, we, we want to see the Father so we know where you're going. And right now, you're standing in the way. If you could just get out of the way so I could see the Father, that would be great. And Jesus says, Philip, I'm not in the way. I am the way. This is what Jesus is, is about to explain to him in more detail. As we look through these verses, we'll see Jesus teach us three important things about our relationship between us and God. And the first is that Jesus does not merely show us the Father. Jesus represents the Father to us. We see this in verses 9b through 11. Whoever has seen me, says Jesus, has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else, believe on account of the works themselves. Jesus is saying here that he does more than simply step out of the way and point us to show us the Father. Rather, Jesus stands as the way and says, look at me. I am representing. I am showing the Father to you. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. I, I tried to set us up for this with, with that silly introduction because this idea of representation is not actually one that's, that's super familiar to us in our culture. We have, we have the word representative, but it, it means, I think, something a little bit different to us, particularly in postmodern America, than it did to Jesus in first century Palestine. To us, the word representation either means I am watching a TV show and I see someone who looks like me, or it means like the, the person that we vote for that's supposed to go to a capital somewhere and act on my behalf. I think when we think of like a representative, the, the political aspect is what most Americans would 
probably think of first, right? We vote for someone who is supposed to go and represent the constituents uh, as part of the, the legislative body. Now, there could be some commentary here. Let's just say that's not always how it works. <laughs> that, that's not typically what representatives actually see their job as, at least not anymore. Much more commonly, representatives are not representing the people who voted for them, but the party platform that was handed down to them by their superiors. But that's maybe another talk for a different day. It's a different idea of representation. That's what I'm getting at. In Jesus' day, this, this idea of representing somebody else was much weightier. There's also much more familiar, much more accessible. You could imagine like a, an ancient herald in, in a kingdom. The, the herald was the person whose job it was to go wherever the king wanted them to go and to say whatever the king wanted to be said on the king's behalf. Okay, but a herald doesn't just like roll up in his athleisure because he just got up to the couch off a Zoom call and like stroll up somewhere like dress nice from the waist up and, and start talking to people. And like, yeah, he said this. You can kind of do it this way. You can do it. No, no, no. When the herald arrived, you got you to imagine this scene. Here is someone who looks truly regal. The herald probably arrived in, in some fine regalia with the royal insignia emblazoned on his chest. Got a fancy hat on. He's riding on horseback, surrounded by an entourage. Okay, this is, this is an entrance when the royal herald comes to your town. There's, there's trumpets blaring and bodyguards standing around to form a perimeter. When, when the herald begins to speak, he doesn't say, listen to me. He says, hear what the king has to say. See, uh, he's a representative because you look at him and you know not only who sent him, but you know something about the one who sent him. He is, in that moment, for all intents and purposes, the king speaking a royal word. You, you look at him and you immediately know where he comes from. That's more similar to what Jesus is doing here. Except Jesus takes even that idea and takes it up a notch. Because Jesus is, is no employee sent by a king to run an errand. Jesus is the king who has stepped off his throne to come deliver his message in person. See, he is sent by God the Father, but he himself is God the Son. This is why he says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Someone might ask, like, how, how can this be the case? How can Jesus say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? It, like, is Jesus saying that him and the Father are the same? The answer is not that the Son and the Father are the same, but rather that the Son and the Father are one. Okay, that, that might just sound like semantics to you, but it's actually a very important distinction because it's a distinction that Jesus himself made earlier in the book of John. The Bible teaches, including Jesus' own words in John, that there is one God who exists for all eternity in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father, Son, and Spirit are one God, but they are not the same. 
The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. This is the doctrine of the Trinity. As Trinity, the one true God exists for all eternity in perfect, loving, harmonious, unified relationship within the Godhead. The Father, Son, and Spirit have always shared perfect love and community. They always have, they always do, and they always will. So when Jesus comes into the world, he is acting in everything that he does perfectly in line with the Father's will. Because the Father's will is also the Son's will. When Jesus is ministering and teaching, he is displaying the Father's character because the Father's character is also the Son's character. When Jesus goes to the cross and dies in our place for our sins, he is showing us God's heart for humanity, the Father's heart, because it is also the Son's heart. Okay, so they are distinct persons, but the Father, Son, and Spirit are of the same essence. I could use probably a lot more words and metaphors to try to break down exactly how it is that Jesus represents the Father. But typically, in these cases, it's best to just let the Bible speak for itself. We can come up with all kinds of uh, metaphors and analogies, but eventually they break down. And with the Trinity, when an analogy breaks down, it usually leads to heresy. So we're going to steer clear of of all the Trinity analogies and just look at what Scripture says. Colossians 1.15 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He he is not some artist's portrayal of the invisible God. He is the very image, the invisible God made visible. That's what Colossians says. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. The the, the radiance of God's glory is like the light from the sun. It is the, the visible outworking of the invisible reality. But not only is he the radiance of God's glory, he is also the exact imprint of his nature. That whatever contours we see in the person, the character, the nature of Jesus are the exact contours of God's own personality and character. So when we see Jesus, it is no exaggeration to say that we see the Father, because Jesus has come to perfectly represent the Father to us. By the way, just before we move on, if you, if you need kind of proof to validate that claim, because that's a big claim, like Jesus has a word for you at the end of verse 11. He says, believe me, but if you don't believe me, believe on the count of the works themselves. Jesus is pointing us back to his resume and saying, remember, remember when I when I turned the water into wine without touching it? That's something only God can do. Remember when I healed the little boy who was on his deathbed, even though I was miles away? That's something only God can do. Remember, remember when I walked on the water? That was right after I fed 5000 people with five loaves and two fish. Both those things only God could do. Jesus is saying, you don't have to believe only my words because everything that I've done has demonstrated to you that the Father has sent me and is working through me. Okay, so Jesus doesn't merely show us the Father. He represents the Father to us. But if we continue on, we, we learn something more about our relationship to God through Jesus. The second thing we learn in, in verses 12 through 14 is that Jesus also represents us to the Father. 
Verse 12 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, I know there's going to be somebody who's really excited to talk about verse 12. We're going to get back to the first part of verse 12. What does it mean when Jesus says that we're going to do what he does and even greater things than he does? We're, we're, we're going to get to that. But first, I don't think we can actually understand the first part of verse 12 until we understand the second part of verse 12 and into verse 13. Because if you look about three quarters of the way through verse 12, there's a really, really important little word. It comes right after a comma. Do you, do you see the word that I'm talking about? Someone say it. Because it's the most important word in the sentence that is verse 12. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do and greater works even. Why? How? Because I am going to the Father. See, that, that word because is important because it means that whatever comes after it explains and establishes what came before it. Okay. So, for instance, I could tell you that I have never, and this is true, I have never lost a professional ping pong match ever in my life. Pretty impressive. Because I've never played a professional ping pong match ever in my life. See, the, the, the because is important because what comes after it explains and establishes what came before. So, so whatever is true of us in Christ, whatever we are called to do, however we are called to live, that's important. But we have to see that it's only possible because, Jesus says, I am going to the Father. This is a little phrase with a big, big meaning for us. Jesus is speaking here about what will happen after his death and resurrection. He's been speaking over the course of this dinner and this conversation with his disciples about the fact that he must die, but after he dies, he will rise. And now he's looking even farther into the future and is speaking about his ascension back into the heavens to be seated at the right hand of God in beauty and majesty and glory. And what's interesting for us as we come to John chapter 14 is that Jesus is speaking in the future tense because it hadn't happened yet when he was speaking to his disciples. But for us today, this is our present reality. Jesus has gone. He has ascended back to the Father. He is seated in power and glory and majesty at the right hand of God the Father, ruling and reigning over all things. And while he is there, Scripture teaches us that he is representing us to the Father. Now, you might say, how does that work? Like, I get that Jesus is God and he came to represent God to us. But how does Jesus represent us to God? You could look at his life and see how he represents us to God. He was the perfect man, completely untainted by sin. He gave himself as a sacrifice, which was only valid because he was a perfect representative on our behalf. If Jesus had not been a representative of us, his death would have meant nothing. But a little bit different, he, he represents God to us in all his fullness, 
in all his perfection, he represents us to God way more perfect than we could ever be. He, he stands in our place as our substitute. Not, not revealing to God what we truly are, but revealing to God his, his own love for us in his son Christ. We are covered by Christ because he is our representative. But what's interesting, that was all, all a tangent, and I'm sorry for it, but that's actually not even what Jesus is talking about here. He's not talking about his life as a representative. He's saying, I'm going to go away. I'm, I'm going to go be with my father. You're going to live this whole life like I've lived because I'm going to my father. So there is something that Jesus is currently doing right now as you and I are in this church building together. That is Jesus representing us to the Father. And the scriptures actually tell us a couple of different ways that Jesus does this. In 1 John 2, verse 1, we're told that Jesus is our advocate. It says that if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. That, that word advocate is a legal word. It's a, it's a defender. It's a counselor. It's someone who speaks on behalf of someone else to a judge. So as our advocate, Jesus is right now speaking on our behalf, defending us, seeking our good before the Father. But not only is he our advocate, 1 Timothy 2 tells us that Jesus is also our mediator. He says, if anyone, I'm sorry, rather, he says, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. The man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. See, a mediator is someone who stands in the middle of two parties who are at odds in hopes of bringing reconciliation back. As the perfect God-man, Jesus stands in the middle between perfect God and sinful humanity in order to reconcile us back to God so that we could be restored in relationship with God. Romans 3 also tells us that Jesus is our intercessor. These are all ways in which Jesus is representing us to the Father. It says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised and is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. In other words, it's saying that there's only one perfect human, only one person who could have the right to condemn anybody else. And he is the very person who died for the ones he could have condemned. And not only that, who was raised in order to bring us new life. And right now he is at the right hand of the father interceding, praying for you and for me all the time, every day. Why is this important? It's important because Jesus is representing us to the Father, which means we can approach the Father with boldness and confidence, knowing that in Christ we are blameless and righteous. See, Jesus makes it possible for us to have a reconciled relationship with God. You see this? This kind of interplay between representing God to the world and representing the world to God 
was originally the job given to all humanity. This is what God created humankind for. We were created to represent God to the ends of the earth. That's why Genesis says that God created men and women in his image and after his likeness. The garden is the the perfect image of what life was supposed to be. We were supposed to be planted in the garden to cultivate, to build, to, to be fruitful and multiply across the earth while walking with God in the cool of the day. We were created to represent God as his image bearers to the rest of the world out of our relationship with him. And in turn, to represent the world back to God. But humanity broke that relationship. We we broke fellowship with God. And instead of loving God as God loves us, and instead of loving his creation as God loves his creation, we instead let creation control us. And in doing so, we discarded God. See, the fall was humanity's rejection of God and refusal to represent him as we were supposed to in his world. And the result is is that instead of representing God to the world, what do we do? We we end up seeking our own interests. We, We represent ourselves. We represent our own sinful hearts. Every sin starts with a man or woman choosing to represent him or herself instead of representing God. What we need now is someone to come and represent the representatives who have failed. And this is exactly what Jesus has done. Instead of choosing his own desires, instead of choosing his wants or his needs, Jesus, as the Son of Man, did the perfect will of the Father and chose to seek our good even while we were enemies of God. Even while we were still stuck in sin, he acted on our behalf. Jesus chose death for himself in order to choose life for us. Instead of freely taking from the tree like Adam did, Jesus is willingly placed on a tree to free us from that bondage of sin. And on that tree, he represents humanity's deep brokenness. He represents God's perfect justice and mercy. And on that tree, John says that he represents God's love for the world. That God so loved the world, he sent his only son. On that tree, he restores the broken relationship between God and humanity. So that humanity can once again be united to God in Christ. This is a a glorious truth. that, That Jesus not only did what we couldn't do. But that he did what we couldn't do so that we can start now. Jesus does not allow us to simply stop at, oh, I'm so glad Jesus came to represent God to the world. We should be glad that Jesus came to represent God to the world. But he doesn't let us stop there. He doesn't let us stop at, 
oh, I'm so glad that, that Jesus is representing me to God. We should be glad that Jesus is representing us to God. We, we would have no other hope outside of that. But Jesus does not allow us to stop there. He says, in light of that reality, now you are to represent me to the rest of the world. This is the third thing that we learn. That as followers of Jesus, we are to represent him to the rest of the world. This brings us back to the first part of verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. In verse 14, he says, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Check this out. So, so because Jesus has gone back to the Father, those who believe in him are supposed to do something now. Those who believe in him are supposed to do the works that he did. But not only that, he says, greater works than these will he do. Tell me, how is that possible? Well, what does Jesus mean when he says in verse 12, greater works? After all, I mean, what, what could be a greater work than what Jesus did? How could we ever do anything greater? It's important to know what that word greater really means. That, that's the Greek word megas. It's where we get our term mega. It, it can mean something of importance or, or grandeur, but it more frequently means something that is numerous, varied, or multiple. I don't think that Jesus is saying, you're going to do something greater than my death and resurrection, because nothing could be greater than the death and resurrection of Jesus. What Jesus is saying, he's inviting us into the reality that while he was on earth ministering and traveling around, he bound all of his power to one location. Yes, he talked to thousands and taught thousands of people during his time on earth. But when he ascended back into heaven, there were only 120 with him. What Jesus, I think, is inviting us into here is the reality that when he goes to the Father, he is going to empower us with his spirit to be his presence continued on earth. And that the greater works we are being called into is not any one work of some magnitude, but a million little works that see Jesus' kingdom expand to the very ends of the earth. If you just think about it from a historical sense, this, this statement is very obviously true. Just a little while after Jesus ascended into heaven, the disciples receive God the Holy Spirit and, and all the power of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And they begin their own preaching ministry that has an impact of a, a far wider radius than Jesus ever traveled in his life. When Peter preached his first sermon, it says 3,000 people were saved and began to follow Jesus. That's more converts than Jesus ever saw in his own earthly ministry. It's very obviously true that when Jesus says greater works than these you will do, he meant it. And I wonder whether we take him seriously. I wonder whether we take Jesus at his word that when we are empowered by the Holy Spirit, he might just want to do something through us 
that is greater than we could even ask or imagine. Ephesians 2.10 says that those who believe in Jesus are God's creative work. The Greek word is poema. It's a poem, a masterpiece. We are God's creative work, having been created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand so that we could do them. Every single good work done in faith contributes to this greater work that Jesus is calling us to. I think some people sometimes have a... a, a misunderstanding or, or a misinterpretation, thinking that the only way to make gospel impact is by doing some kind of huge, extravagant act on behalf of Jesus. Could, could you imagine doing this in a relationship? Wives, could you imagine if your husband thought that the only way for him to do anything that you would appreciate was to only like build up to some magnificent, huge public display of affection? Never mind the, the days and nights that he ignored you planning this big thing, right? Like, like he doesn't have to have any other conversations with you ever. Like, like just as long as there's like a quarterly big display, then you're good, right? Like, no, that's, that's not how relationships work. If we think that our only opportunities to, to display God to the world are in some, some grand show of, of power and affection... We're actually going to rob ourselves of the opportunity to partner with God in the million little opportunities we have to make gospel impact. Anything you do, if done in Christ, can make a gospel impact. I'm talking changing a baby's diaper. Can I get an amen? Amen. I'm talking fixing someone's car, mowing a neighbor's yard, bringing someone a meal, visiting someone who is sick, babysitting for some burnt out parents. That'll get an amen. Each of these good works done in faith and obedience toward God can make a gospel impact, not only in somebody's life, but in the world around you. Sometimes I think we we shortchange that possibility. We, we say, well, how can that be? How could such a little action make a gospel impact? I would just point you back to Jesus' words. I don't know if we can put verses 12 through 14 uh, up on the screen, but if you've got it in your copy of the scriptures, Jesus starts by saying that whoever believes in him will, will do the works and even greater works. But he ends by saying, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. See, these these little acts of gospel faithfulness can make even generational gospel impact, not because you're at work, but because Jesus has promised to be at work in and through you in all of the little things, in all of the, the little works that add up to the greater work that he is inviting us into. When we do anything, if we do it for the glory of God and in the name of Jesus and gospel stuff starts happening, that's because it's really Jesus doing something, not you. It's really his power at work, not yours. As we just close our our time together, I love that Jesus has this conversation with Philip. Of all of his disciples, I'm so encouraged that he chooses to have this interaction 
with his disciple named Philip. Why, why do I like that it's Philip so much? After all, wouldn't it be more impactful if it was one of the bigger names, like James or Peter or something like that? Think, think about who Philip is. If you were to go back and trace Philip's name through the Gospel of John, you'll see that he was one of the first few that Jesus called to follow him. He was either third or fourth. He, he was right there at the beginning. He, he went and, and got a friend named Nathaniel, and he said, you'll, you'll never believe it. We found the Messiah. You've got to come and see. So Philip is a faithful early adopter. He, he is a faithful follower of Jesus. But he is an imperfect follower of Jesus at best. He starts off with a bang. He goes off and invites a friend. But a few chapters later in John chapter 6, Jesus is looking at the crowd of 5,000 people. And he says to Philip, how are we going to feed all these people? And Philip responds by saying, I, I don't know, Jesus. We could, we could make like, I don't know, seven or eight months wages. We could collect them all. And we still wouldn't have enough money for everybody to get a little bit. Philip knows who Jesus is, but, but he's an imperfect disciple at best. A few chapters after that, some Greeks came wanting to ask Jesus a question in the temple. And Philip was like, oh, I don't know why they came to me. It must be because I've got a Greek name. And he, instead of like pointing them to Jesus and taking them straight to Jesus, he goes to Andrew and asks Andrew, well, what should we do? These guys are asking a question. They, they want to talk to Jesus. Uh, I, I guess... Okay, you guys stay here, we'll go ask Jesus. And I love that Jesus is having this conversation with Philip because I think Philip shows us what it looks like to bring your imperfect to Jesus time and time and time again. Philip is not someone who messes up and gets down on himself and says, I, I would be better off just going somewhere else. I would be better off finding another teacher. Jesus would be better off without me. No, instead, Jesus, or rather Philip, stays faithfully imperfect, knowing that Jesus is perfectly faithful to make up for his shortcomings. I wish for a church filled with Philips. I would love a church of people who know that they follow imperfectly, who know that what they really need is an experience of God to give them the power to make it through life. And I wish for people who would be so filled with the humility of Philip to bring those insecurities and bring those imperfections and lay them down at the feet of Jesus. Because when we do, Jesus says, get up, I've got work for you to do. Congrats, you made it through the whole sermon. We just want to say thank you for listening to Sunday Sermons with Resurrection Church. Again, this is the weekly preaching and teaching ministry of Resurrection Church in Gig Harbor, Washington. If you want to connect with us, you can do that by going to our website at resurrectionchurch.com. There you will find all the ways to worship with us, and you can sign up for our weekly newsletter, connect with us through a group or event, find a place to serve, and give financially. We're so thankful for each and every one of you, and our hope is that you will continue to live life with Jesus this week.